Welcome to the February 2023 edition of Discourse, our critical take on the category of religion in the news and current affairs. I'm Ben Marcus, your host. Today, I'm very pleased to have Paulina Gruffman and Charlie McCrary as our guests. I look forward to learning from you both. A bit about me, I earned my bachelor's and master's degrees in religious studies from Brown University and Harvard Divinity School, respectively. After graduating from HDS, I worked for five years at the Freedom Forum in Washington, D.C., where I served as the religious literacy specialist. I continue to serve as a Freedom Forum fellow, writing and speaking about religion, law, and education, while I pursue a JD with a focus on religion and law at Yale Law School, where I'll graduate this May. Paulina Gruffman is a PhD student at Lund University. Her research is primarily historical from the mid-19th century to contemporary time, focusing on esotericism, occultism, new religious movements, and, quote, new age spirituality. She's particularly interested in how these groups' activities and writings intersect with popular and academic understandings of religion, as well as the historiography of the academic study of religion in general. And finally, we have Charlie McCrary, who's a postdoctoral research scholar at Arizona State University. And in the fall, he will be an assistant professor of religious studies at Eckerd College in St. Petersburg, Florida. He studies secularism, religious freedom, race, and politics in the United States, and is the author of Sincerely Held, American Secularism and Its Believers, published by University of Chicago Press. I'm so delighted to have you both, uh, Charlie and Paulina, and I really look forward to today's conversation. And I thought maybe we could kick off with a new story that came uh, into our consciousness from the Religion News Service about Pew Research and a study related to religious knowledge and religious literacy in the United States. And I was wondering, Charlie, if you could give us a little sense of what that story was about. Sure. Um, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, looking forward to the conversation. So this Pew study um, that came out, it's, I think, a continuation of um, a series of studies that they've been doing for a number of years now on religious literacy, um, which I know, Ben, is something that you have worked on um, quite a bit, so I'm interested to kind of hear your take on this. Uh, but basically what they do is they give a, a sort of quiz, right? Um, so it's not a survey that gauges opinions about things um, or people's own kind of personal perspective, um, although there are some components of that built into it, such as how much do you think you know about X and Y groups, right? Um, but then, but the, the bulk of it is this kind of quiz about these kind of basic intro to religion kinds of issues. Um, you know, do you know who gave the Sermon on the Mount? Something like that, right? Um, and then they score people according to whether they get it right or wrong um, and kind of rank these uh, religious affiliations or rank the groups according to how well they do. This is interesting, I mean, for a number of reasons, but I mean, for scholars of religion, one of the perennial issues for us is what counts as religion? What does it mean to study a tradition? And who decides these things? And so some of the decisions that Pew is making about what counts as religious literacy um, are interesting. Uh, and then there's this kind of meta level thing about is religious literacy something that scholars of religion should be striving for among our audiences when we're doing public scholarship? Are we doing it to increase religious literacy? What do we mean by that? Um, and for me, I mean, I'll, I'll just start the conversation by saying, typically, 
I tend to be a little bit hesitant around this because I wouldn't want to reduce religious studies to learning some factoids or like memorizing some some basic info. And I think about this as a teacher that, you know, if what I'm doing in my world religions class is making sure they memorize the Eightfold Path and the Five Pillars, this isn't enough to actually, you know, understand what's going on in the world. And yet, um, I think it's nice when people know things. <laughs> it's, it's not bad to know things. And so uh, I think it's, it's a little bit complicated, but I, I'm curious what, what the two of you thought about um, the study itself and then also kind of how it's presented in, in different sources of news media, including religion news service. Yeah, well, I, I have thought a lot about religious literacy work and um, this was another interesting study by Pew that, uh, actually draws on, there were two earlier studies by Pew that I know of that were more extensive about knowledge about religion. Um, the first one was called, I think, a U.S. Religious Knowledge Survey. The second one, I believe, had a slightly different name, conducted a number of years apart since, um, I believe the first one was 2010. I could be wrong in the year. But so those were looking at um, questions related to religious knowledge and intending to try to collect some data about what Americans know about religion. And the breakdown of questions was quite similar and maybe even actually more diverse in, ter in terms of the kinds of questions they asked on those surveys. This one, if you actually look at the questions that were asked, there were eight questions and they were on a very narrow band of issues related to religion. Four were about scriptural narrative, passages from scripture, stories from scripture. Um, two were about theology. One was about the significance of a holiday one was a little bit harder to categorize, but was sort of about doctrine and sacred geography. And those kinds of questions about religious knowledge, I think, show what or reveal what many Americans think religious literacy means, which is some familiarity with the scripture, theology or doctrine of different religious communities, um, or what we might think of as belief. And I thought it was quite telling that the author of this story used religion and faith interchangeably throughout the story. So the author referred to faith traditions and faith communities. And, and that I think is, is indicative of a much broader divide within some within the religious studies community about is religious literacy intended to be an exercise in memorizing certain kinds of facts or knowledge about religious traditions, focusing in particular on theology, doctrine, um, and and scripture, uh, in part because there's an understanding that religion is quite belief-based, or at least at its core is related to something about belief, or is it something else? And, you know, so it was raising a lot of those questions for me. I should say that the American Academy of Religion has released its own set of guidelines for what religious literacy means, and it's very much not in that model. It's in the model of what Diane Moore has written extensively about and defines religion, I'm paraphrasing to some extent, but it's about, um, it's a skills-based um, definition of religion so that people can understand the way that religion interacts in their private and public lives so that they are better able to recognize um, three main sort of, three main presuppositions. One is that religions are internally diverse, that they're dynamic and changing, and that they're embedded in culture. And so this survey really isn't aligned with those definitions of religious literacy, which I find quite interesting. This, 
the sort of staying power of this fact-based definition of religious literacy. And I'm curious, Paulina, in the context that you work in, if there are conversations about religious literacy and how people define religious literacy in the context in which you work, whether it aligns with the sort of underlying presuppositions or assumptions that go into a survey like this by Pew, or whether it's sort of more along the lines of the American Academy of Religions definition of religious literacy. Yeah, uh, I would also like to begin by saying thank you so much for having me on here. It's it's a lot of fun to discuss these things, these things with you. But more uh, regarding your question, in my most immediate field of well, Western esotericism or broader the, broader the history of religions, I would say the general consensus is that it's more aligned with AAR's definition for religious literacy. A lot of the research that is undertaken in my field is, of course, historical, but that includes the sort of history of contemporary religions or religions as they are presented and engaged with and, and lived in the contemporary world. One thing that came to mind when I was reading through the Pew uh, study was the fact that the the groups identified as religious and the sort of the people that were answering these questions, a, a majority, from my understanding, uh, was were affiliated with what is usually called world religions or the world, the sort of five big religions in the world. They did make distinctions between uh, Catholic groups and other Christian groups. Whereas, for instance, Muslim groups were presented more as, well, Muslim, and uh, there were Jewish groups, uh, Buddhists, and Hindu, Hindu uh, religious practitioners, I think. But a lot, a large majority of the question is concerned, uh, as you mentioned, scripture and sort of belief-based um, dimensions of religion, but also mainly, or a lot of them had to do with Christian ways of thinking about religion. I thought that was really interesting for the outcome of the research, which my main takeaway was that the, among the different people that answered the questions from these different groups, the vast majority knew the most about atheism, uh, which also is a category that's understood in very different ways in different parts of religious studies, uh, but also between the public and scholarship. So that makes me think, uh, yeah, it would be interesting interesting to hear what you have to say about the sort of sampling that they did and also the, the categorizing of religions and how they're presented and understood. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up the world religions paradigm, which I have a question for you, Charlie, about that, which is, you know, one of the findings was that folks who have gone through formal schooling where they have taken world religions courses outperformed those who hadn't, and that those who had higher levels of educational attainment outperformed those with lower levels of educational attainment. And to me, at least, that reflected more on the ways that we teach about religion in the United States in formal educational settings, focusing on the world religions paradigm and focusing in particular on a belief-based way of understanding and teaching about religion than anything else. But I wonder if you have any response to that or any thoughts on 
the findings related to educational attainment or on world religions courses and and the correlation with um, answering more of the questions correctly. Yeah, this is a, a place where there's like a bit of a pedagogy conversation and a bit of a public scholarship conversation, and they are shading into each other, um, which is a space that I find exciting, but also kind of vexing. Because I mean, I tend to think, on one hand, I do think that there's so much discussion about public scholarship, right? And I kind of go back and forth on it. I think that students are our most important publics, and that anybody who teaches is doing a sort of public scholarship. And yet that's not what people usually mean when they say public scholarship. And so I kind of wonder, like, when I'm doing public scholarship, which is, you know, writing a 1,500-word piece for an online magazine, I do not think of that very similarly to teaching an intro class at a college. <laughs> but maybe they should be. So anyway, that's that, that's just one, one thing to kind of throw out there. I mean, in terms of, like, the educational attainment, that, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, the, the glib way to say it is just like, you know, people who have taken a bunch of classes know more things like that seems to I mean, they probably do better at their local pub trivia also. Um, OK, fine. <laughs> um, what I what I'm kind of curious about in this literacy. Let, let, actually, let me tell a story because I kind of want to ask uh, Paulina about this, especially with like Western esotericism. So I was at this conference like two weeks ago on public scholarship on religion. And we were talking about some of these issues and somebody gave this really interesting presentation that has really stuck with me, where he said, he was talking about, um, this is another news story. So in Indiana uh, and a number of other states, um, especially in Indiana, a number of groups, um, especially liberal Jewish groups are trying to make the argument that the abortion ban in the state violates their religious freedom because part of their religious practice is to have bodily autonomy and self-determination and stuff like that. And this is a sincerely held religious belief for them. And so saying they can't get an abortion violates their religious freedom. What he said about this is that judges who don't recognize that as a legitimately religious position have a religious illiteracy problem because they don't know stuff about liberal religions. So their knowledge about religion is Number one, probably according to some world religions paradigm, what do you know about religions? Well, you know, who gave the Sermon on the Mount or like the, who Moses is or something, right? Okay, great. But they don't know. And what they know about lived religions, religions on the ground, is shaped by the dominance of conservative Protestants in the United States. So nobody really questions whether Hobby Lobby is really religious when they say certain forms of contraception are a violation of their religion. That type of religion is legible as religion, whereas quote unquote liberal religions don't seem like religions to a lot of people, where it seems like actually a political belief, not really religious. Um, and I thought it was so provocative that he called that illiteracy. But it made me wonder, like, is our job then as educators, whether in the classroom or in the public, again, these are kind of the same thing, is our job to kind of bring that level of literacy to teach people about liberal religions and say, hey, these are real religions too. Now you ought to know about this. Um, and so I'm curious, especially with something like Western esotericism, I would imagine there's quite a bit of illiteracy or just lack of knowledge about these things. But then do you think of your job as like, to teach people about these traditions. And then when you're doing that, are you saying, and these are real religions too? Or like, what's the, 
you know, what's the upshot of learning about them? That's a, that's a really interesting question. And I'll try to give different ways of looking at this briefly, because scholars are very divided on the issue of whether Western esotericism is about sort of educating or broadening the, the way that religion is understood and sort of making a claim for alternative spiritualities and groups that haven't been part of the mainstream as also expressions of legitimate religion. I would say some scholars do fall in that camp, and for them it's very much, it's very, very important that we do broaden our understanding of religion to include groups that have not been included in the past. On the other hand, there's definitely scholars that they don't really take a clear stand on this, or it's not something you can you can clearly see in their scholarship, where they're more concerned with, did the people in these groups think of themselves as religious, or did they make have any impact on religions and religious life in the specific area that you're focused on? Or in my case, what I'm studying has a lot to do with how the group Theosophists are members of the Theosophical Society, what their bearing has been on scholarship on religion. So it's a bit of a meta thing in a way, but it's also there are direct links between Theosophists that could be understood as religious and coming from a sort of insider perspective, having clear roles in forming the foundations for the academic um, study of religion. So I don't know if that answered your question, but hopefully uh, at least it gave a bit of a, some ways that people think about this, which also brings me to something that's happened in the news recently that I've been thinking about a little bit, which is the Asbury revival or awakening. There's many different ways of sort of speaking about this. If I say a few words about it, just to introduce it for those who haven't come across it in the news, it's a it's Asbury University. It's a university in a small town in Kentucky in the United States. And for about two weeks, people have like flown or traveled to this town and to this university to partake in a so-called revival um, where people have been continuously celebrating and they've been praying and doing other types of religious activities in the university chapel chapel for for yeah for an extensive amount of time it has now sort of ended uh i think the school officials uh they were over overwhelmed with the amount of people like tens of thousands that arrived at the school and what makes me think of this story now that we're talking about how religion is thought of, presented, and what the role of religious studies scholars are in all of this is because the way that this uh, revival has been presented in the news is coming from more conservative sort of news media. It's been a very positive and it's a bit, it's, it's been presented as a, a Christian event and something that has had a, a clear uh, importance for various Christian groups and de denominations across the United States and across the world as well. Whereas some, some other news media that are maybe less clearly sort of conservative in nature, if that makes sense, 
uh, have been more focused on the way that uh, they've been portraying this as like problematic or or questionable or a type of practice that in some way could pose problems and create feelings of exclusion for Christian groups that do not have the belief that revivals are a legitimate way to practice Christianity. And sorry if I'm going on a little bit here, but I'm, I'm trying to just tie this in because it made me think of what counts as, for instance, a Christian group and what counts as a cult, a sect, alternative religion, the sort of religions that generally fall outside of the scope of the world religions paradigm and the world religions sort of idea. So with that being said, much of what I studied does fall outside of this category of religion since they're, they're not part of the WRP. But I'm interested in, in hearing your thoughts on this uh, thing. If you've been following it in the news, if you have any re reflections on this old in a way, uh, idea of the whole sect cult church discussion, uh, but also how it's maybe reflected today and in the news, if it is, in your opinion. So both Charlie or or, uh, or Ben, I'm interested in hearing what you have to say. Yeah, Charlie, would you like to start us off? Sure. I think my initial impressions of this story as a historian of American religion is that, you know, there's just nothing new, right? <laughs> um, this is, I mean, you can go to the early 18th century in the British colonies, like same thing is happening. There's a quote unquote revival. Certain entrenched interests don't like it um, because of the style or because of the political implications. And then there's a fight over like what real experience is. Like this is, to the extent that the evangelical tradition exists, this is it. <laughs> People having revivals and then arguing about revivals. Like, this is what they do. What's interesting to me about it, I mean, which is, um, I think, slightly different from the angle you're taking, Paulina, but, but related to it, is this question in news media, but also among scholars, about how to describe it. And this is something that comes up among historians of evangelicalism, too. I mean, number one, around the word evangelicalism. Do we describe them as evangelicals, or is that kind of reading back some anachronistic category onto whatever was going on. Um, the, this great book um, by Doug Winiarski, um, Darkness Falls in the Land of Light, which is, um, I think, the best book I've read about revivals. He calls the sort of revivalists or great awakeningers or evangelicals or whatever, he just calls them Whitfieldarians because they're followers of George Whitfield, right? It's a particular movement. This guy comes over, starts a kind of social movement, and some people follow him and start their own churches and do their own things. So just name it after that guy, right? By calling it an Asbury revival or an awakening, are you, is that useful for analyzing it? Or is that just kind of replicating the actor's own terms? I mean, this is a kind of perennial religious studies issue, not just religious studies, anthropology, all kinds of groups, right? Um, I don't know. I mean, because in some ways, like to call it a revival sort of, authorizes their understanding of what is happening. When they call it a revival, what they mean is the Holy Spirit is being poured out in a new way. I don't think that's what's happening as a kind of secular analyst of religion, right? And yet calling it a revival also is a way to link it to this historical tradition that I'm talking about. And so in that way, it might be really useful for framing the type of social dynamic that's happening. 
but maybe also that kind of fails to analyze because it's, you know, we don't have as much critical distance by using the actor's terms or something like that. I mean, I, I actually don't have a super strong stance on it. I can see it both ways, um, but I'm curious what you both think about, about that, how to depict this thing that's going on. Yeah, I will um, defer to Paulina on that excellent question, but to respond to the initial question, to tie it maybe into our first conversation about the first story, when I was learning about this revival, and to be quite honest, I feel like I consume a lot of news each day, but I hadn't heard about this until, Paulina, you brought it to my attention, which I find interesting in its own way that this wasn't being reported on, at least in the news outlets that I read. Um, also, what I immediately thought of in relation to the first story is just how many different things we can mean when we say that Americans lack religious knowledge. On the one hand, it might be the case, at least it seems to be the case from the research that Pew conducted, that Americans don't know a lot of facts about other religious traditions or perhaps even some facts about the theology or doctrine or scripture, scriptural narratives within their own tradition. But it seems very clear from this story that while they may lack a knowledge that, they have a knowledge how, that here's a community of people who clearly know how to express their own religious convictions in ways that are intelligible to their co-religionists. Um, and that that is that, that, that knowledge how is geographically um, diffuse. It, there are people across the country and around the world who can communicate very fluidly, very um you know, they have a, a kind of facility with language with one another, a fluency that that is is very meaningful. And so when we talk about religious knowledge, you know, I think this story raises the question for me, are we talking about knowledge about religion or, or religious knowledge? And are those two different things? Um, and how do we teach about religion in a way that makes clear that people may lack a certain kind of knowledge that even when they have a knowledge how? Um, and also the, the the second thing that this story raised for me was the difference between, or at least the the mutual interplay between belief and behavior and communities of belonging. And when we focus just too much on belief, on whether people are gathering together because they believe the same thing, we miss the extent to which maybe they're gathering for other kinds of reasons, either because they practice in similar ways or because they're seeking out certain kinds of community, regardless of the similarities of the or differences of the beliefs that they have. So I'm curious, you know, from your perspective, Paulina, as someone who studies these kinds of communities and these kinds of movements, whether there is a theological similarity between the people who gather together in these kinds of ways, whether that's even a focus of their gatherings or whether there seem to be other reasons why they're, uh, they're joining together in these kinds of expressions. Thank you. Uh, yeah, that's a very interesting dimension of all of this, like the rationale behind and the reasons, reasons for why people gather in these events, in these revivals, if it's about maybe social, uh, for social reasons, as a way to broaden networks and connect with other people from other churches or from other um, parts of the, of the country, or if it has to do with a sort of the a belief that I mentioned that this is something that is according to the sort of 
experience and the theology behind um, the specific religion that, or the specific denomination that I follow. I don't know if I have a clear sort of, I have a lot of thoughts, but I'm not so clear on exactly where to go with that. But it really made me think about if we return to the issue of religious literacy and what the role is for scholars in working with religious literacy. It made me think about how religious literacy really can be about learning about religion, which I think is very much aligned with the AAR definition, or more more so learning from religion. In Sweden, where I'm from, there's a religious studies as a university discipline, and there's religious education as a school subject. The overall goal of religious education, it's both to learn, it's actually both to learn from religion as well as to learn about religion. And it, there's a debate going on right now uh, with various actors involved where people are discussing whether or not it should be more about, about religion or learning, learning about or learning from and whether or not religious education should align more with the general sort of religious studies approach, if there is one. And I can definitely see the different uh, ways that people understand these two subjects or the subject of religious education and the, the, uh, the religious studies sort of, especially the introductory courses of religious studies, uh, whether or not we should sort of take research that's been conducted recently and communicate it to younger students, or whether it's more fruitful to align religious education or sort of formulate it on its own terms. And an important dimension of that is the fact that religious education also has has to follow the national curriculum for religious or for for elementary school in general, but, but also for purpose behind religious education. And it deals a lot with fostering respect and creating knowledge among students about different religions so that idea is that so that you can then be less like have less stereotypes about other religious groups than your own. And I think it kind of aligns in a way with some of the work that's been undertaking in, in the United States and in other parts of the world regarding, yeah, this, I think the Pew sort of study also indicates that when, when learning about another religion, there's a potential to also then respect that religion more. So there's like a goal behind this learning about another religion and the, and an understanding that if you know more, you will also have more respect and you will also treat people with, or have a more nuanced understanding of other people. And I, I was just going to briefly say uh, in some countries, and I'm not so sh uh, sure what's, what it's like in the United States, actually, or in parts of the different states, but for some, for, for some individuals or for some schools, religious education can actually be sort of from learning from religion in the sense that it's a religious school. And the, yeah, it's like Bible study class, for instance, 
But in Sweden, that's uh, not allowed. We can't have religious schools. Uh, it's it's always non-confessional, the study of religion, both in universities and in elementary school. Uh, so that's not really a question. It was just a comment, but I'm very interested in hearing what you have to say. What you were saying just made me, it sparked this question for me, which is, um, okay, so this Asbury um, event We'll call it. We'll call it the event. Like it's a Delillo novel or something. Um, the Asbury event is happening. What is the? It's it's at a college, right? So okay. What's so? What's the relationship between knowledge about religion, which is you know the way we might frame this, um, in a tradition of revivals and debate about revivals, something like that? Do the students know that history? And are they kind of implotting themselves within it, right? It, to what extent does their knowledge about religion and their understanding of their own tradition influence what is actually happening on the ground, right? I actually don't know. I don't have a good sense of this. But, you know, I mean, to tie it back to this religious literacy thing, the, the headline here uh, for the Religion News Service was, how much do Americans know about other faiths? Which is a fine question, but the other question is, how much do they know about their own faith? And what does that even mean, right? So it seems like there's this kind of tangle of things, which is how should scholars describe what's happening? But then also, how do the practitioners describe what's happening? Do they use, and, and, and should we, how should we engage with their own self-analysis, right? Because I do think it is analysis. If the students say, we're doing a revival, well, okay, they actually know something about their own tradition, <laughs> maybe quite a lot, depending on what classes they're taking and um, and so on. I mean, I one of the very first papers that I wrote in grad school was about, um, speaking of revivalists, was about this guy, David Brainerd, who was a missionary to Native Americans. And he wrote this um, diary, which is really a miserable text. He's bummed out all the time. and. Um, <laughs> But he's like, he's like a suffering martyr, right? And he dies. And so Jonathan Edwards, the great revivalist evangelical, publishes Brainerd's diary. For hundreds of years, people read Brainerd's diary and try to emulate him, right? And so they think about what they are doing as they become missionaries, as they suffer, right? Um, and then this happens again with like uh, Jim Elliott, this missionary who dies in South America in the 1950s and is then kind of memorialized and people say, I want to be like Jamelia, but Jamelia is trying to be like Brainerd. So there's this kind of like chain of religious knowledge that is really emic in a lot of ways. That is like people conceiving of their own histories and, and making themselves in a certain way. Um, that is a sort of analysis. Um, but also I think that if scholars just kind of replicate that and say like, oh yeah, he's doing the Brainerd thing, but that's not, uh, the sort of extra step of analysis that, that we need. Um, and so anyway, I, I wonder how that, what is the religious literacy approach to understanding the Asbury revival, right? Is it to understand the theological stakes of it? Is it to implot it within a certain history? And how does, how do those scholarly questions interface with the kind of self-analysis going on among the practitioners themselves, which I'm sure there's quite a lot of, um, not to ramble too much, but the other th the other question I have about this is, um, you know, we were asking why do people get involved in this, and, and I just want to suggest that it's probably fun. Um, I've been reading 
I just I have it right next to me. I've been spending my time reading this crazy book by Gilbert Seldes, who's a journalist. Uh, this is from 19, the 1920s. And he's writing about 19th century fanatics, quote unquote, and cults and manias. Um, but he starts with a description of revivalism in the 18th century. And he's really talking about what a fun social event it is. People get to hang out in the woods and it's like have a party. That would make sense if we call the as if we call it an Asbury party. You know, I don't think I would have a lot of fun there, but clearly they're having fun, right? Um, and yet, fun is not like the type of description they would probably give, and it's not like a sufficient sufficiently religious or theological explanation for what's going on, right? And yet, like from a kind of social analysis perspective. It is a big party and or like a festival or something like that. Then it makes sense that people would be flying in to hang out with people who are like them. They like the music. Like it's a good time, yeah. Um, and so I, I think we shouldn't we shouldn't lose that. Um, and then how that interacts with what I just said, I, I don't know. I think it's it's kind of a complicated dynamic. Well, thank you so much for such a rich discussion. I know we intended to talk about a number of other fascinating stories in the news, including Curious Joel and funding of religious schools and the relationship with public schools, about Erevim in Brooklyn, about Pope Francis and the Archbishop of Canterbury and, and homosexuality. There's so much that we could have discussed about religion in the news this month, but I'm so glad we stuck on these two topics and teased out some of the overlaps and um, richness in, in putting these two things in conversation. I know that we're running a little bit low on time. So in you know 30 seconds or a minute, do either of you want to provide final closing thoughts on the topics that we've discussed today and what this might illuminate for folks who are interested in the academic critical study of religion and those who are in classrooms and might be teaching about religion? For scholars of religion, events like this, yeah, the Asbury event, if we call it that, uh, um, they they can be understood in a, many different ways. Um, there's the way it's presented in the news, it's the way it's presented, and the, also the sort of groups that are in power of certain news channels or the different news channels, what they sort of align with in terms of religious faith uh, or religion. But also, there's different ways of, of explaining, understanding, historicizing, etc. cetera, uh, events like this. And it's useful to be able to do it in multiple ways. Great. Thank you. And Charlie, any final thoughts? Yeah, my, my final thought is this question that has been kind of sticking in my craw for the last couple of weeks um, since that conference and is, what's a craw exactly? I don't know. It's deeper in it now. I don't know. It's still there. Um, based on this conversation, which is, you know, for scholars of religion like me, I do, you know, I'm in this kind of critical secularism studies mode of scholarship, where a lot of what I do is to kind of deconstruct how categories are used to look at the power behind certain categories, who gets religious freedom, what counts as religion, etc. And that really seems to run counter to a lot of types of public scholarship and public engagement, which is to bring more information, to bring more literacy, to teach people about the religions, right? And so the question I'm kind of stuck with is, what place is there in public scholarship on religion for something that is more, to use a term um, 
kind of inartfully deconstructive or critical rather than, you know, providing more information or something like that. And I think we've taken something like that approach to these two stories, but but maybe not quite. And so I'm, I'm still trying to chew on that and, and figure out what kind of an angle there is there is to take if that's the type of scholarly analysis that we do. Great. Well, thank you both so much, Charlie and Paulina. This has been a wonderful discussion and I've learned a tremendous amount from you both. As a reminder to our listeners, we've been joined today by Charlie McCrary and Paulina Gruffman, and I'm Ben Marcus. Thanks to all of you for tuning in to this month's episode of Discourse. Remember to check out all of the fantastic podcasts produced by the Religious Studies Project and visit the RSP website for a treasure trove of essays and other resources you can use in and outside of the classroom. Thanks again, Paulina and Charlie, and I hope you both have a great day. Thanks for joining us. Good. Thank you. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by Editor-in-Chief Andy Alexander and founding editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson. Our features are edited by Israel Dominguez and Savannah Finver, and our Opportunities Digest by Trevor Lynn. Audio editing by Alex Matthews and Nathan Springer. Podcast transcription by Ayesha Javid and Jacob Noblet. And social media managed by Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com, .co.uk and .ca links, or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes, Instagram, and other portals. Thanks for listening.